El Faro was an American cargo ship crewed by 33 US merchant mariners. In 2015, as the ship travelled to Puerto Rico from Florida, she steamed into the centre of Hurricane Joaquim. Sadly, all 33 mariners went down with her. This huge tragedy left behind a treasure, a voyage data recorder or a black box with recordings of the conversations that happened in the days, hours and minutes before her demise. What could have saved them? Language. Let that sink in. Your voice and the words you choose when you use it matter. My guest today is David Marquet, former US Navy captain and author of the brilliant book, Leadership is Language. He analyzes the language used by crew and captain aboard El Faro and shares lessons we can all learn about the power of language. Oprah, Steve Jobs, Andrew Denton, Ando. To me, these guys are masters of communication. The rest of us, well, mainly you, because I'm a pro, fumble our way through. Comical examines this funny little thing called communication that can either tear us down or make us sore. Join me, I'm an amateur comedian and a communication expert. Join me and listen, learn and laugh through the experiences of my very talented guests. Welcome, David. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me on your show. An absolute pleasure. Now, the El Faro story is a recent one. Can you tell us what happened? Yeah, so this is a tragic story. The El Faro is a, a huge container ship, two football pitches long. And she left Florida, sailed into a hurricane off of Bermuda, and was sunk. On all 33 crew members lost their lives. Lost at sea, never found. And so you might be thinking, well, when did this happen? 100 years ago? No. This happened five years ago. This happened in the hurricane season of 2015. And the ship had all the equipment, knew the hurricane was there. So the problem wasn't knowing about the hurricane. The problem was how the crew talked to each other about making the decisions they needed to, to avoid the hurricane. And fortunately, ships have black boxes like airplanes do. And the government was able to find the ship and recover the black box from the bottom of the ocean. And so we have a 500 page transcript of exactly what these people said. It makes for harrowing reading because we know the end. We, we know what's happening, yeah. uh, what's going to happen. And you're just cry out at, you want them to turn. There's this critical point where the storm is battering the ship and it's getting worse and worse and they're reading the weather reports. And there's this turn that they can make that will take them behind the Bahamas into protected waters, uh, but they don't make it. And I think it's a story that is worth paying attention to because we have this notion, oh, that would never happen to my group, or that would never happen to my team. We would never make a bad decision. But then over and over and over again, we have well, uh, Wells Fargo or Volkswagen or Boeing 737 Max. And over and over again, we see well-intentioned people making really, really bad decisions. And I think it's because we're using the wrong language. So you are a former U.S. Navy captain, aren't you? Yeah, yeah I was a submarine commander. And so was your interest in this stemming from your experience in the Navy or was it coming from a communication perspective? Uh, no, it's from my, per my personal. I, I didn't know anything about communication. <laughs> uh, 
It, it was just luckily, we say even a blind squirrel finds a nut every now and then. But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but my story in the Navy is I was coming up through the ranks. I was, I was very good at telling people what to do, getting them to do it. I was getting promoted. And they said I was selected to be a submarine commander. And for 12 months, I was trained to go to one ship. And then at the last minute, I said, no, no, you got to go to this other submarine. The U.S. is Santa Fe because this, the captain there has quit. Oh, by the way, it's the worst performing crew with the worst morale. And, <laughs> and it's one of the newest ships in the fleet, not the kind you were being trained for. And it, you've never been on this kind of submarine before. So my experience there was there was so much not in my control. Yeah. Who to hire. And I hear business people talking about spending a lot of energy and getting the right people, and putting them in the right positions and all that. It turns out that the, actually the most important thing to drive team performance is how the team interacts, not any of those other things. Fortunately for me, I spent zero energy and emotion on those things because I had no control over them. It's more complicated for your typical business leader. All I was able to control was the language. And we just started changing the words that we use. For example, we had this word, they, that we used a lot. And they meant everyone but me and my tribe or my little division. My, yeah. It could be my rank. Like, oh, if I'm an enlisted person, well, they is the officers. If I'm in the officer, they was the enlisted person. If I was in engineering, they meant operations. If I was on operations, they meant supply or whatever. But they was always somebody else. Yeah. And I got upset one day and I said, there's no they on Santa Fe, which rhymed. So that was... Uh, <laughs> <Cute>. convenient <laughs> it's a bit of a jingle going it, on I'm yeah sure. yeah so it made it easier to remember yeah and that became our mantra no they on santa fe you had to say the word we well we didn't order the right part we didn't do all the preparations we needed to whatever yeah. it was and the weirdest thing happened after six months it felt like we it would have felt just as wrong to say they at that point as it felt right to say day earlier. And what I discovered was we think the language lags the feeling, but the language actually drives the feeling. It's, it's the repeated use of language. So when you keep saying the word we, that says a signal to your brain, my tribe, my tribe, my tribe, my tribe, my tribe. And then your brain grows the connections that make it feel like your tribe. And so people visiting the ship, they, they couldn't understand. I said, oh, this is the most amazing culture of teamwork. And I, I laughed. I said, we don't have a culture. I never use the word culture. What is that? Yeah, we just say that we always refer to each other as we. Team accountability as well, right? So it creates that we're all accountable for our success in our work together. Yeah, you can't, there's no blame. You can't like, yeah. well, they, like, well, who, who, who? Like, who exactly. So, so yeah. and that, and a number of other things. So for example, on a submarine, let's say we're, we're about to shoot a torpedo and someone thinks that at the last minute we might be shooting the wrong target. I would never say don't shoot because what if they don't hear the don't? What if someone sneezes or there's a bang, right? When the don't. So all they hear is yeah. shoot, then they shoot. So we learned to pay a lot of attention and we would just go over the words over and over. This is exactly what we're going to say. And we would do it. I'm an engineer. So I'd apply this kind of, and kind of a geeky introvert. I, I have a problem. I don't really read. I, if someone says to me, like, how are you? I actually answer the question. I don't really, I don't get that. It's just, you're just supposed to say, fine. How are you? <laughs> you give the blow by blow details. No, it's not what I'm buying. I'm just, just say, fine. How are you back? Oh, okay. Yeah. 
So I became really struck by the power of language. And the most important changes were that we shifted from a doing language to a learning language. And we shifted from a language of disempowerment to a language of emancipation. I won't even say empowerment because it was, our special word was intent. And, and instead of people coming home up and saying, tell me what to do, or I'd like permission, they say, hey, Captain, yeah. here's what I intend to do. And that was super, super powerful. So that, that got me on this, hey, what, how do teams actually talk? And then we have this, we delude ourselves with, well, this is how we teach people to talk, or this is how we think they talk, or this is how they should talk. I don't care about any of that. What I care about is how do we actually talk? Mm -hmm. And that's what's beautiful, yeah. actually, about the way you start your book, Leadership is Language, where you start with the story of El Faro. But what's remarkable is through tragedy, as you say in your book, you're given this treasure, which is the ability to analyze the conversations that happened on that ship at critical points in time. And so what did your analysis of those recordings find? First off, I'm very sensitive because I'm talking about people who have loved ones who lost loved ones and they're going to read. It's easy to be critical. It's easy to take anything that you said yesterday, if we had it on recording or anything that I said and say, oh, well, you know, I could have done this a little better. That is easy. But the thing yeah. that strikes me yeah. is these were well-meaning, well-trained, well-equipped people trying to do their best. They obviously weren't trying to go out and die. And the captain got some criticism of how he behaved. But I worked for all kinds of captains who said exactly the same kind of thing that this captain says. And oh, by the way, if he was such a bad captain, why, why did the company make him a ship captain? It's highly competitive. And why hadn't any of his evaluations? No, everything was wonderful, 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 wonderful. Oh, you're, you're terrible. No. That doesn't make any sense. So, and, and what I took was actually more that the captain acted in a true captain way, right? That old school, I, it's my job to just give you yes. directions. And so that was what was fascinating. And there, so what did you find when you went through the analysis from a language perspective? Yeah. Um, thanks for getting me back onto the, onto the <laughs> track. <laughs> yeah. So two, two things, two things. Number one, the word distribution followed salary distribution. Are you referring to share of voice yeah. there? Yeah. Is that what yeah. you mean? So okay. in other words, when the captain and the officer and a crewman were standing on the bridge for several hours, all we did was just count the words. Long word, short word, right. good word. It doesn't matter. Remember, right. I'm an engineer and I'm a kind of a math and <laughs> odd math. So I said, well, let's just count the words, see what we learn. Like, well, what point? Anyway, well, blah, blah, blah. Okay, let's just count. So we counted them. Here's the eerie thing. Every single time, there were those, that combination, captain, officer, crewman. When you added up all the words over the, the captain would be on the bridge for like two or between two and four hours, typically. And then we go down and we come back and we'd, we'd reset the tally. Every single time the word count exactly followed that hierarchy. The captain always said the most number of words. The officer sort of next and then the crewman way below. So it was typically like 52, 45, three, something like that. Wow. Not only does it follow the sequence of their salaries, it sort of matches the change because the cap the officer will make close to the captain, but the crewman will make a lot less. And this pattern, we see this in meetings. 
that the leader gets the most number of words. It's a sort of unwritten rule. And that the, the lowest ranking person has to sit at the end of the table or even against the wall. And they are not really, they, everyone knows you're not really supposed to speak up. But this is a fragile, fragile, anti-resilient pattern. And so what you want to do as a leader is make sure you get this even. You got 10 people in a room, each person about 10%. You don't need to measure it. Humans are very attuned to it. If you just, we just asked people, so we, we did some samples where we measured it and then we just asked them, hey, who do you think spoke the most? You know, how, by how much? People are pretty good at getting this. The second problem was the kind of words that they use. And I, I call it using doing words in a thinking game. So when they were in situations where they needed to make decisions, the words that they were using tended to be words that would have been appropriate for a team that was just being told what to do, a team that was just focused on, on production and action as opposed to reflection. And the key here is doing views the variability or diversity as an enemy, but thinking views variability as an ally. Uh, variability is an ally for thinking. It's an enemy to doing. So we're using words that inherently are designed to reduce variability, and we're applying them to a decision which needs variability, and it doesn't work. So if, for example, I hear business leaders say, let's build some consensus about, no, build consensus. What is that? I'm reducing variability because I'm squeezing the outlying opinions toward the middle. That's not what you want to do. The decision has to be made after we understand all the opinions, especially the ones on the fringes, over and over and over again. Well, all innovation starts as an outlying opinion. That's fascinating. And by variability, you mean less ideas, less opinions? Yeah, exactly. Right. And is that because it helps make a quicker or a leader views that variability might delay a decision or is it about control? Both. It's certainly about delay. So in your head, you're the leader. You've done all this testing. You're nervous because the competitor is going to come out with a competing product. You have a lot of money invested in it. You've made earlier decisions supporting the product that's coming out. So you're connected. Your ego is attached to that product. And even if you want to say, okay, I'm going to be dispassionate about this, your brain can't be. It's already attached itself and it's going to convince you. It's going to muster arguments that are going to try and convince you it's the right thing to do. And what you really need to do is put all that aside. And the best thing you can do is just say nothing. And we always say, vote first, then discuss. Most teams, when they come to a decision meeting, say, well, let's talk about should we launch the product or not next week? Blah, blah, blah. Yes, no. That is not the right way to do it because the discussion inherently makes it harder for the people who think different. Like, I don't think we should launch 737 Max. I don't think it's ready for prime time. That person, if they thought that in the meeting, will be dissuaded from speaking. But the leader can say, oh, well, we all hear. Everyone had a chance to speak up, but you don't know what you didn't hear. And when I look at the word count, we don't have transcripts of that critical Boeing meetings when those happen. So I can't tell you for sure, but we know from other patterns, when you look at word count, the word counts are skewed and the CEO is getting his way thinking he's doing the right thing. Well, if he or she is right, great. But over and over again, you just better be right 100% of the time, which you never will be. Mm. <laughs> you talk about language of vulnerability. Mm. What does that mean and why is it beneficial to leaders? In the industrial age, Let's say I'm running a textile mill 
in the 1800s. I hired you to do what you were told. And what you were told to do was manual labor. It was a simple, physical, repeated task. It may have been in sequence with other people, but it wasn't really in teamwork with many other people. And in that situation, the way a firm became profitable was we made the task so basic that we can hire the most uneducated person, which meant we could pay them the least amount of money, and they would just do exactly what they were told. Since I was telling you what to do, and I was making the decisions about how we should do it, where we should do it, what we should make, I didn't care what you thought. I didn't care about your emotional health. I didn't care about your psychological health. Now we know it's best. The people who are closest to the work know the most about the work. The person's doing the code, the person flying the airplane, the person doing the medical procedure, they know the most about the work. So we started saying, hey, well, why don't we ask them? I think we need to go further and actually let them make decisions. Say, I'm not going to ask you so that I can still make the decision. I'm going to try and give as much decision authority to you as possible. But this means we're now asking people who I did the work last week and now you're asking me how I could do it better. That only works if I feel like we're in it together and I come from a sound and safe emotional place, which means I need to feel connected. The play is to connect. In the industrial age, in a hierarchy, we actually eschewed connection. We wanted people to conform to their position. That's why we build big executive offices. I was literally at a company in Switzerland with a big multinational global, one of the top 100 companies on the planet. And as I got closer to the CEO's office, the carpet just got thicker and thicker and thicker. (laughs) (laughs) And why? Because we're separating, because we're sending a signal, hierarchy is important, power status is important. And this is about making it easier to get people to be compliant. This is not how we want to run our organizations today. But it's so baked into the culture and the language and the way we run meetings that even if I get rid of the carpet, the way I run the meeting, I come in, I'm the CEO, I say, okay, hey guys, we're here to discuss, blah, blah, blah. So I think we're all set to go, right? You just made it really hard for the person who thinks that's a bad idea to speak of. It's not exactly, yeah. Yeah. There was an example, another book I'm reading at the moment is David Epstein's book, Range. And it's funny because there's very similar themes, although you both use very different language and examples in sharing those stories. But he makes the same point. Yeah, I don't know that book. What, 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 what's he talk about? What's he writing about? It's basically about range of experience and taking on the views of people who might not be the hyper-specialists. Mm. for instance. Mm. And so he uses some examples of organizations where CEOs have been more open to problems being solved by everybody rather than them finding solutions or dictating what a solution might be. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So I love it. I'm going to go check it out. But here's the deal. I'm supposed to be a guy who knows something about leadership and has read a bunch of books. I could have pretended like I heard about the book. Yeah, exactly. So so me saying, uh, hey, I, I, I'm not familiar with that book. That's a little bit of, that's vulnerability because there could be some listeners say, oh, this guy, he was, he know, he doesn't know. Of course, that's a famous book. What is he? You know, he doesn't, must, doesn't know what he should, ought to be <laughs> I don't know if it's that famous, but, this, but anyway. Well, anyway, but but this this habit of being able to say, I don't know, really came hard to me late in life, but it's so powerful. If you can't say, I don't know, your people can't say, I don't know. And if your people can't say, I don't know, they're just going to be continuing finding ways to BS. There's no honesty and integrity in the organization. You're going to waste a lot of time Mm. chasing your tail. Mm. 
Now, most companies aren't recording employee conversations, or so we'd like to think. <laughs> How can a team... With Zoom, I think. <laughs> With Zoom, a whole lot more. No, I know. It's weird. Like, in, if you're in a meeting and I had a microphone there, I'd be like, oh, this is weird. You're recording yeah. us. But on Zoom, it's the little record button, no one cares. I have to say, I find it strange when I'm on a Zoom call and it's being recorded. It does make me feel a little uneasy, I have to say. Yeah. But anyway, let's assume that hopefully most organizations aren't recording yeah. conversations in the way, for example, an airplane or a ship yeah. might, for obvious reasons. So how then can a team identify language of invulnerability yeah. or a lack or an imbalance in share of voice? What are those signals that we should be looking for that the language might be contributing to the lack of collaboration? Yeah, that we're applying a reduced variability doing language when we really want an embrace variability thinking language. So it starts with you. Stop thinking that you're going to give other people feedback and fix them. Start with yourself and invite feedback. So you go pick a collaborator. I'll give you a very small example. A lot of people, myself included, have a tendency to say something like, okay, so I've heard all the arguments, blah, 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 blah. We are going to go north. Okay? We are going to go north. Does that make sense? We're going to go north, right? Yeah. Everyone on board. Everyone on board. Yeah. And so that little, that final bit, it's, the, it's just another nail in the coffin to, and don't speak up. So I say, you know what? I want to get rid of that. I don't want to say it. What I want to say is, okay, here's the decision. We are going to go north. How could this go wrong? What gives you trouble? What should be looking for that would give us an indication this is a wrong decision? Something like that. You want to ask for disconfirming information because everyone nodding their head is the socially approved behavior. We don't need more everyone nodding's heads. Yeah. We need some more shaking heads. So you say... I want to get this out of my language. I, I don't want to say that anymore. And so you can record yourself or you get a collaborator and say, hey, I want you to listen. If you hear me say, right, then you're going to take one of these referee cards and you're going to hold it up and you're going to yellow flag me. <laughs> or you're going to tell me afterwards how many times, something like that. It's very difficult to root it out yourself. You can. Another thing that I, in the early days of start with leaders is um, binary questions. So will this work? Is this going to make sense? Are you sure? Like, no, I'm never sure. Anyone who says they're sure about something is an idiot. Other than the sun coming up in the east, I'm really not too sure. I'm not sure. It's maybe 99.9%, but I'm not 100% sure. So I need to ask a question that gives room for variability. And if I ask the question, are you sure? I'm just narrowing the responses down. You're in a box. It's either yes or no. That's not interesting. I don't learn anything. When I say, how sure are you? You're like, yeah, 51%, 99.9%. Now I'm learning something. Now we can have a conversation. And it naturally also levels the share of voice. When I just say, are you sure? No. Three words to one. When I say, how sure are you? Well, about 55% sure. Well, tell me what's behind that. Well, blah, 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 blah. So naturally, I'm inviting a lot more words. What you've just explained to me is that you should start with self-reflection and see how you can change your own language rather than changing someone else. Yeah. Let's assume in an organization that the, the leader or the boss doesn't have that level of insight and you're faced as an employee, somebody on that team, you might be a manager, right, with a boss who is not giving you permission or room to speak up. Mm. Is there a level of 
accountability or obligation on the employee to speak up anyway. Yeah, in, in, the health, in healthy organizations, what happens is people say, no matter how hard you make it, no matter how sort of socially unwelcome mm. my thoughts are, I, I'm not dedicated to you. I'm dedicated to our process, our product, our client. Our purpose. Our purpose, the values of a company. And so, like, if you were going to get on an airplane, you're going to fly from Sydney to LA, and you get to interview the cockpit team. The first team, the co-pilot says, yeah, I'm the co-pilot. She's the pilot. What she says, I did. The second co-pilot says, I'm the co-pilot. She's the pilot. What she says, I'll probably do, because it's probably consistent with safety. But if safety of flight deviates from what I think the pilot's saying or doing, I'm going to speak up because my highest purpose is safety of flight. It's not to do with this person sitting next to me tells me. Now, since they're also guided by the same highest purpose, we're normally aligned. But if there happens to be daylight, I'm committed to speaking up. Now, which airplane are you going to get on? The problem is we get so sucked into follow the person, which is that, that it doesn't work. So so the answer is yes, you, you want to do that. You want to be careful. You want to be respectful. And you got to earn the right to be heard before you try and convince anyone. So we always say in those situations, you got to get permission and start with observation. Don't say, oh, I think that's a bad decision, which is now you're attacking the decision. Say, here's how we see it. So let's go back to Boeing 737 MAX. Hey, we've been having a lot of trouble in the flight simulator. Uh, the thing went crazy a couple of times and the autopilot took over and crashed the airplane. And we don't really understand why that happened. Now, if you want to go ahead and release it for public consumption, that's on you. <laughs> so, so eventually you'll earn the right. And hopefully the boss turns to you and says, hey, so Marie, what do you think? But if you never get there, get a different job. Because that's <laughs> going to that's gonna eat away at you. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there are plenty of people out there where people want to do the right thing. And there are plenty of leaders who will react in a positive way to help like that. But that culture of silence sometimes, like for example, on in the El Faro example that you spoke about, which I, by the way, I became a little bit obsessed about and went into a rabbit hole ah. reading all about it. And you're right, it's harrowing and I found it really, really sad. Mm. And I felt for the families who had to read the transcripts or yeah. saw yeah. the conversations that happened. It was incredibly tragic. But it also struck me whilst the captain had his direction and seemed quite old school in the way that he was giving instructions or receiving feedback, so too was the crew of 32. So there was a lot of conversation behind the captain's back. People openly disagreed and they shared that as a team but never openly shared it with the captain. And for me, it highlighted the importance of speaking up, even if you don't necessarily feel that permission, but finding it within yourself to be brave and to commit yourself to the purpose and not the person in a very diplomatic but persuasive way when required. So you want to believe that you should act like that. But the problem is when the leader says, well, you weren't brave, you didn't speak up and blames you. The mm. leader's responsible for making it easy for you to speak up. You're responsible yeah. for speaking up no matter how easy it is. When you get that, you're going to have an unbeatable combination. Yeah. But what we too often see is people say, well, I didn't speak up because they didn't make it safe. And leaders say, well, I tried to do the best job making it safe. You weren't brave enough to speak up. And so we have yeah. this rather than mm. I'm responsible for my part, which is speaking up, no matter how uncomfortable it may feel. Yeah. And the leaders feel responsible for creating a culture 
where there's not recrimination, where we're truly interested in, in outlying opinions, different opinions, yeah. different things of thought. Truly, not just lip service, but like really, oh, hey, Marie, yeah, tell us more about that. And when that happens, you have a winning culture. You have a resilient, self-correcting organization. When this happens, you have a fragile, brittle organization that is highly dependent. I call it closely coupled to the ability of the leader to make correct decision after correct decision. And eventually it's going to be incorrect. And so you're going to be, oh, good. Look how much money you're making. Money, 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 bankrupt. Money, <laughs> money, 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 dead people. Yeah. That's the problem. That's the seduction. So in summary, and it's going to be hard because I know this was a big chapter what most of your book was about. But if you could summarize the top three moves in the new playbook yeah. when it comes to leadership language, what would you say they are? Number one, remember that the words that you use and the words that feel natural came to us from the Industrial Revolution. So they are designed to be coercive. Number two, stop asking binary questions when it's about what people think. You could say, hey, did you go to the game last night? That's history. That's past. But what should we do? How sure are you? How safe is it? Put the word how in front. And then number three is your language is designed to enhance hierarchy. And there are trappings at work about that. Closer parking spots, bigger offices, whatever it happens to be. And this impedes the, the ability for information to flow up the hierarchy is proportional to how steep that is. So what you want to do is try and get that flatter. And you do that by coming out from behind your desk, sitting next to the other person, moving your desk into the middle of the office, being human and having a connection with other people. Now, it doesn't mean you have to spend half an hour talking about the weekend or something like that if that's not what you're interested in. It, but it does mean you have to genuinely care about them as human beings and parents, children, cousins, friends, teammates, whatever role they're playing in life besides the one where, that, where you see them at, at work. Perfect. So I could talk to you for hours. I really genuinely loved your book. Thank you. I think everybody should read it regardless of whether they're in a leadership or management position. We're all going to get there one day, hopefully. But the lessons that can be learned for anybody in the workforce are enormous. Thank you so much for joining me, David. An absolute pleasure. Hopefully I'll speak to you when I read your first book, yeah. Turn the Ship Around. Yeah. <laughs> I might come back to you on that one. All right. Thanks, Marie. And uh, thank you all listeners for your time and attention. Thanks for what you guys do to make the world a better place. Thank you. And that's comical for this week. If you'd like to join the show, suggest a topic or ask me a question, hit me up on Instagram at Maria or Daggle or email me comicalpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. See ya.